But thanks so much for joining me. No I, problem. I know you're a busy person. First of all, let me just say, I'm shocked by your age, right? You're 24 years old. I always thought the first time that we met, um, you were helping uh, me out briefly with my campaign and you showed up for an event with me, which is awesome. Um, and I thought, my impression was that you were, first of all, significantly older than I was. Because <laughs> uh, you had a longer beard at yeah, that yeah. time. You had a more stoic um, personality, a very mature personality. Do you get that a lot? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think I get like early 30s. Yeah. Um, although recently yeah, yeah. I, I went to a school yeah. um, and I was trying to tell the kids that I wasn't that older, that much older, right? right? I mean, high school, I graduated 2015. Wow. So I was trying to tell the kids like, hey, it's only been six years. And one kid looked at me and was like, yeah, you're not that old. You look like you're in your mid thirties. And then I just, <laughs> it just killed me. I mean, Well, just... I mean, and it's not even just the fact that you looked older, but you were the president of the Board of Education recently, yeah. um, which is a, a very significant role. And so when you hear that someone's the president of the Board of Education, you assume that they're probably in their thirties, that they've had like a big career before getting to that point. Um, talk to me first real quick about like what compelled you to run for that position in the first place and then what gave you the confidence being a young person to even think that you had a shot of winning because I think that's a lot a step that that holds people back is they don't think that they can actually get to a position like that so what was that experience like for you yeah I think uh, by the way let me just check okay you're good yeah, All right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. okay so I, th I think for me um, Initially, like I was very focused on like being pre-med, like I would want to be a doctor. Right. Uh, didn't really think about like politics as a pathway. I mean, my parents never talked about politics. I mean, growing up, I didn't know a school board existed. Right. Um, probably the only elected officials I knew was probably like the president and like the mayor, right? And I think for a lot of people that's true. Like you know, you like your local person, and you know like the president of the United States. Right. Um, but what happened was I, I think Bernie's first campaign, I think, yeah. was like inspiring for a lot of people in the sense of like new generation of politics, like a new way of framing, like what does it mean to sort of be involved in the political atmosphere? Right. And so at the same time that he was running, mm -hmm. you also had Donald Trump, um, like his candidacy. Right. And so, I mean, when Trump was running, it was about Jersey City specifically. Right. He said, I remember seeing thousands and thousands of Muslims cheering on rooftops after 9-11. Right. And like, you know, that brought back all these like memories for our community, which like terrible traumatic memories, right? Yeah. I mean, like yeah, our no community was, was yeah, no yeah. one was cheering. Like our, our community was spied on by the NYPD, right? We had right. tons of like things that happened with Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one of my friends initially was the one who was going to run. He was actually pre-law. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, he was like, I want to focus more on law school wow. than do this. That's interesting. And, and so I kind of stepped up because, you know, I, I said to him, I was like, look, I think you have tons of great leadership skills, but if you're not going to do this, like, mm -hmm. I want to be involved in some way. Right. Um, and so 2016, like, initially ran, mm -hmm. destroyed in that election. Oh, no. I mean, yeah, it was okay. not a – so that election, yeah. I think I got 7,000 votes, something like that, right. with – about so we spent about seven thousand dollars, something like that. Right. Um, my opponents collectively, I think, all together, there was maybe like more than a million dollars poured into the election. Right. And so very quickly, I realized, like you know, it's money in politics, like it's it's like a very big deal. Yeah. Um, but was, was there a factor in play about the party line? I don't know how much your your 
uh, aware of that issue, but in a lot of counties in New Jersey, there's a party line where the, the county picks, you know, their preferred candidate, they put them at the front. Do you feel like that was a factor in your initial race? Or in so, I mean, race? fortunately for, for my races, they're nonpartisan. Like, oh, okay. school boards are always nonpartisan, right. so there is no party line. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely, like, establishment forces, right? Which right. is like, hey, like, these are the people the Democrats are supporting. Right. Um, and so even if you are a registered Democrat or, like, brand yourself as a Democrat, like, you don't necessarily get the whole, like, benefit of the party system supporting right. you. Right. And then, so what is that... Well, talking more about that process of running, did anyone from the Democratic Party reach out to you either in 2016 or 2018 to get an idea of why you were running or like what kind of interaction did you have um, in the process of starting your campaign with the, the party itself and the apparatus? I don't I mean, I don't think it was a positive experience in the sense that like I never felt people took me seriously. Okay. I mean, I, I think definitely 2016, like no one took me seriously. I mean, I was 19 right. years old. Right. Um, people were like, Hey, who is this new kid on the block? Like right. no one, like no one knew who I was. Right. Um, the only thing I even remember hearing was someone saying like, Hey, if you drop out, mm-hmm. like, you know, we'll, su- we'll like support you in the future. Right. Okay. Like wait your turn sort of thing. Right. And my whole position was like, I don't like, yeah. I have nothing to lose here, right? Yeah. Like, why would I drop out of a race where, like, I really felt like I was putting forward compelling ideas? Right. Um, the whole point of that campaign really was, like, I think students' voices mattered, right? And so I was like, hey, Especially like, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, you know, like, in education, our whole argument was, like, look, like, the consumers of education are students, right. but we never ask students, right? Like, we talk right. to parents, we talk to the taxpayer, we talk to the principals, the teachers. Mm-hmm. No one ever goes to kids and says, like, hey, how do you feel about your education? Right. Um, and I think I was very privileged in, like, the education that I received. But in many ways, like, I don't think it pre- even prepared me properly for college, right? Like, right. being ready for the next thing in my life or, like, how to get a job or, like, how to understand networking and how to, you know, put myself in the right position uh, to get to where I am today. Right. Right. And so I think in many ways, like, there's a lot of things our education didn't offer. Yeah. Um, and I want students to be able to actively give that feedback and so that was the whole premises and genesis of that campaign i i'm really happy that you mentioned your your first campaign too because i don't think a lot of people realize the significance of failure right um to me failure is the most important thing in the world right because when you fail you can analyze what went wrong and then you can learn from that and then you can build on that to do something better the next time around and for you i mean it seems like that kind of worked out right because you didn't win in 2016 then you came back at what was it 2018 2017 2017 that you ran again and then that became a successful campaign so what were the lessons that you learned from that initial failure and then also how did you push through the kind of depression that comes from failure and get back up and say, I want to try again. Yeah. So I, I think I, that's definitely true in the sense of like, I think you learn a lot more from failures and successes, right? Okay. Because it's like you put a lot of effort into the thing, you put your heart into it. I mean, I remember, right? Like being able to go to the ballot box, like vote for yourself. Like that's just a it's big, cool. like it's a big moment. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think for me, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned was just like how politics really operates, right? Like how do you get in touch with people? And also this idea that social media is not real life, yeah. right? Like yeah. I my first campaign, I'm 19, like I'm basically just using Facebook ads and Instagram and feeling like, oh, like that's it. Like it's all I need to do is like focus on social media, getting good traction. And right. social media metrics, yeah. we were like top four in wow. terms of candidates, right? Like right. I thought I had a real shot at winning this. Right. Um, but it wasn't until like you start to understand that most voters are much, much older, right? Yeah. Seniors, I mean, are the most reliable voting block. Yeah. They're not on social media. Yeah. They're not influenced the same way. Yeah. Um, and so 
like understanding the value of retail politics, like understanding like how to meet people and reach people where they are, like putting yourself out there. Um, So that second cycle, I think in many ways it was like there was an aspect of destiny to it, right? Right. So someone had resigned. There was a one-year opening. So traditionally seats are three years, but there was a one-year opening. And so I said to myself, well, you know, if there's ever a shot that they're going to take on a 20-year-old kid, yeah, like this is going to be it. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. so it was a one-on-one election. I ran against one other guy. He was, you know, in his 40s, a two-tour Afghanistan vet, like VP at a bank, you know, right. like had a, re- a real resume. Right. My resume was 20 years old yeah. in college. <laughs> like yeah. that, that was it. But you know what, for um, a school board position, that actually sounds like a good qualified resume, right? Yeah, and, and I, but I think that was the argument is like he didn't have any kids in the schools like right. and I and I really like knew the issues right I had just graduated right. I, I knew like what was going on, right. um and w- ended up winning that election by sixty eight votes. Oh wow! So, That's when, so tight. Yeah, yeah, when people talk about like every vote matters, it was nine thousand three hundred eighty eight to nine thousand right. three hundred and twenty. Wow! So sixty eight votes made the difference between winning and losing for me, and I think for me like that was just it, it also just reinforced like the power of local politics right, right. like every single person that you reach out to, like, makes a difference. So what did that campaign then look like for you? Because I I know, so I think my fatal flaw when I ran first was I did exactly what you said, which is I focused a lot on the social media game. I focused a lot on putting content out there. And there's a feedback loop there, too, where you create an echo chamber and you're getting really, really good feedback. The people that watch it, they know who you are, they support you, so you're only getting positive feedback. So you don't realize that you're not doing as well as you're actually doing on the ground. What changes did you make and what did your second campaign look like um, where it was different from, you know, just doing that fo- that social media focused ad? Like, were you knocking on doors more? Um, and, you know, a lot of people look to AOC's first victory where her shoes are now in a museum, right? Because they were so worn from all the doors that she was knocking. Um, do you feel like that was an integral part of your strategy? Was yours more focused on event planning? Like, how, how did you bring people into the fold? Yeah, I, I think it's a mix. I, I think definitely like knocking on doors is huge, right? Like meet right. exactly like meet people where they are. Right. Like so, just knocking on a ton of doors. Like I, I think we knocked on maybe twenty thousand doors. Mm-hmm. Um, like I personally knocked on twenty thousand doors that wow, that second year. Uh, but I but I think beyond that, it's like all right, there are people in communities that people respect and trust. Right. And how can I sort of like leverage that to say like, hey, listen, like this is your pastor. Right. Like I want to do events. Like I want to work and I want to be here for like in any way that I can support. Right. Mm-hmm. So whatever sort of advocacy that I can like help in their help with help out with their communities, whatever sort of ways that I can, um, you know, think about issues that they care about. Even just listening. I think the idea of a campaign where you know to actually, I, I think like to be successful in a campaign. Yeah starts with the listening right right? like as a candidate sure you can put out ideas and like you can follow a national platform in terms of whatever it is that's like sexy at the time but like the reality is like everyday people have everyday problems and like you should understand what they are if you want to represent a community and so for me it was a lot of listening so like going to places and just saying listen i like you know i've run for office before I want to run for office right now. Like, I, I think it's important for students to have a voice, but like, what are the issues you're facing in the schools? Like, how, what can we improve? Mm-hmm. And I think that goes such a long way when people know that like you're actively listening, like not just creating a platform based on like your own anecdotal experiences, but like everyone's experiences. Like, yeah. hey, like what are the things that matter? And I think having had a campaign previously yeah. really helped because 
I had been at debates where I heard the questions, like I knew the hot topics. I knew like, you know, like especially with school funding for us was like a big thing is like, how do we think about school funding? How do we think about, um, you know, the sort of gaps between different like communities and that sort of thing. Right. How is that received initially your, your sort of listening tour, um, if, if I can call it that? Um, because I, I know from my experience, um, and I only ran once so far, and when I was going around, because I had a similar idea, like I wanted to go to communities and listen, but when I came to communities, they thought that I was just like every other politician and that I was doing this, you know, for some sort of, you know, political expediency or just to get a seat, things like that. So there was like a jadedness where they didn't trust that I wanted to listen. So in a lot of cases, they shut the door on me. Did you ever have that experience? And how did you build that level of trust? I think I think like that experience does happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I think personally, it's just about like, you know, leveraging like all the people that you know. So in my first election, there had been people who had who'd been very useful um, in terms of like connecting me with communities and like relying on the people that people trust, right? Because I think at the end of the day, like it is human nature yeah. to like not want change or like not like accept this new foreign person into your circle right right? like you need to have a contact that gets you in i mean in some ways like a frat party right like who do you know here right Right. like who do you know um and like having people that you know that you that can like you know vouch for you and say hey like this person's not here for like the wrong reasons like they actually genuinely care and i think for me like you know i never wanted anything out of the political system right like i wasn't looking for a job i wasn't looking for a handout i very much was like look I have everything else in my life going for me, right? Like I was I was on a full ride at school. Like I, I didn't need to be in politics. Like I would very much like, look, I just want to give back right. and like so help me help you. Yeah. As being genuine too, I feel like people can sense that, that you really don't have anything to gain here and then it becomes more compelling. I think that's, I, I was reading, uh, I got started, I don't know if, if you're familiar with Jay Shetty, his book, Think Like a Monk. Hmm. Um, and I was thinking just about the philosophy of being a monk. Like, what is it about being a monk that is, first of all, interesting to people, but also how is it so peaceful for them? Because my biggest thing about being a monk is I would be scared of being shut out from doing things that give me pleasure, right? Like, I wouldn't want to shut myself out from the world and, and live in that manner, but uh, specifically me. But I think... What I learned about being a monk is it shows your sincere detachment from the things that generate pleasure, which makes people trust you more, right? Because they know that you're not doing things out of like a sense of greed or a sense of, you know, I need to get like this position. Like when you're a monk, you leave everything behind. Um, Have you thought about that philosophy? Like, what do you think about what I just said there? Yeah, I I think that's... I think I feel that in many ways. And like, for me, public office was a lot of sacrifice, right? Like there's a lot of things I left on the table um, by being in public office, right? Like there were so many like opportunities that were afforded to me where I said, look, like I have to be in Jersey City or like we have to make this work. Um, I mean, tons of scholarship committees where like, you know, I would tell them like, look, you know, it's one thing to be selected by a panel of 12, like, experts who think your resume is pretty cool. Right. It's another thing for 22,000 people in your city to give you the trust of their children, right? right? And they're like, if you're going to ask me what matters more, it's always going to be those kids. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you're constantly, like, making the sacrifices to make it work, right? right? So, like, even I think when I was at the Schwarzman program. Yeah. 
I mean, I was flying back from China to like right. make my meetings. I mean, I'd have, you know, conversations like 2, 3 a.m. in the morning because like time was times were flipped. Right. But it was because like that was just so important to me that I right. wanted to make sure it would work. Right. Um, I mean, even now when I was in law school, right? Like I, I was just telling you like this last semester was in person. Yeah. I mean, I have I had two days, like two and a half days of school. Yeah. And I would come back so that I could like, you know, make sure that you know things were operating smoothly here right like make sure that i was involved in the community make sure that i was invested because to me like that was more important than anything right and at the same time right like I, and i think school board is particularly interesting because like it's a it's non-paying like to completely volunteer position right, so right. people are looking at you like hey like you are putting forward a sacrifice for a position that pays absolutely nothing yeah um it's a thankless job like most right. of the time people who come to my meetings they're not thanking me they're yeah. coming there to like so complain, complain right yeah. like yeah. everyone comes there is upset like you know has issues and, and and it's like you're constantly just like in the weeds about so many issues mm-hmm. constantly have to be informed about stuff right. and there is no compensation there's right. there's no one who's like hey like here's a paycheck here is like something like a benefit you get mm-hmm. the benefit is just like seeing kids succeed and that's wow. it right and so yeah. i think from that perspective like i didn't really think anyone could like question my authenticity where it's right. like what is he getting out of this like I'm telling you, it yeah, was yeah, it was yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah. not getting anything except yeah. like the reward of just giving back. And right. I think for me, like you know, people knowing also that I had everything else going for me, yeah. but still actively deciding that I wanted to come back, that I actively wanted to give back. Right. I think like that was um, my difference. To me. First of all, I didn't know that the school board position here was unpaid, and that 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 actually that's really interesting. And I I would hypothesize that a lot of people that are voting for school board probably don't know that the position is unpaid, um, which I think lends to a bit of mistrust because they think that there's a lot to gain from being there, when in reality, I mean, in, in terms of influence, yeah, there's a significant amount to gain, but you're not gaining anything monetarily, you're not gaining anything in terms of even like publicity or like it, yeah. a lot of people, all like you said, only come to the, the school board when it's time to complain about something. So, so there's not a lot of credence or support to the idea that a person would run for that specific position, you know, for money or, you know, for, for an ego thing, which is interesting. I didn't even know that. What was your experience getting into the school board and, like, those first meetings? Like, did people take you seriously right off the bat? Did people think it was, like, a fluke that you got elected? They didn't take your idea so seriously? Like, how was that first year of being in that role? Yeah, I think... Uh... I think there's definitely like an ageism to politics, right? Like hundred percent. Like people, like I remember getting comments like, look, I've been teaching longer than you've been alive. Right. Right. Like, I mean, look, nothing I can do about that. The voters picked me. I mean, like, I don't know what you want me to say. Um, and I think I remember my first day, my first day I walk in and the security guard looked at me and said, Oh, like, are you the new high school intern? (laughs) Right. And, and like on an org chart, I mean, the board sits at the top, right? Right. Like the superintendent is the direct employee of the board. And so here's a security guard asking me if I'm the high school intern. And I'm like, how, like, how do I explain to this person like the role that I'm in despite the way that I look? Um, and so early on, like there was definitely like people who like, didn't take me seriously, like thought I was this, like, you know, really naive, like unassuming, like had no idea how things worked. And like, to some extent, maybe that's true. Yeah. But to another extent, like I was, you know, very well versed on the issues. Like I had done my homework, like right. I knew what was like happening to some degree. Right. Um, and also you kind of got to fake it till you make it right. Like, right. I, I mean, like, obviously I didn't know <clears throat> like rules of procedure. Mm-hmm. Didn't actually understand like how the whole political apparatus worked, right. but I wasn't going to sit there and, and just like, you know, sit and, and, and act like 
I didn't belong there, right? right? Like I very much like actively put myself out there like, hey, I belong here right. and like we are gonna make this work. Right. How, how is that initial relationship with the, your fellow board members? Did you feel like there was people that were like, oh, you know, did you feel that they had some of those opinions where it was like, oh, he doesn't deserve to be here or maybe they were just more supportive of the other candidate that, that you had replaced. So did you feel that you're met with any animosity, any negative feelings from the board? I think people, I think some people initially thought like they were like, I was like their son or something, right? Like, (laughs) like, Oh, like he's new. Like I'll take him under my wing. Like this is my son. But like, I like very early on, like showed my independence, right? Like I was like, look, I'm not here to like, you know, like be someone's crony. Like I'm not here. I mean, but you know, I think this is the thing about, public office is people always assume that right? right i mean like i've gotten comments all the time that's like oh like he is this guy's guy right and and my like think that is like you look at my track record i mean i'm outspoken about educational issues i mean i've gone toe-to-toe with like the governor's office the mayor's office right like right. you know fighting and advocating for our schools right. and yet people will present this argument like oh this guy belongs to xyz right, right? And, and i think part of it is like it's so hard for people to actually believe yeah. Right. That someone can be independent and right. like, like, you know, reach some of the success that I've had. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, over time, my relationship with the board obviously changed to the point that I became the president. So right. the board presidency is an internal election. Right? right. So the nine board members select internally like, wow. OK, we're going to vote for the person that we think should be in charge. Right. And so for me this last year. I mean, like, you know, being elected by the people is one thing too, right? Like having people vote for you. But it's a whole another thing also to have the respect of your colleagues that they decide, like, look, we know you're by far the youngest one here, but at 23 and like while balancing law school, like we think you should be the guy, Right. right? And I think like that was like a really special moment for me that like my board colleagues looked at me and said, you know what, like we trust that you were gonna lead this board in the right direction. What do you think it was that that caused that shift? Right. Because, I mean, what you just described, I mean, it it went from them trying to take you under their wing and show you how they've done it their way to now you're or you ended off your term as the leader of the board where essentially they're kind of learning from you and following your direction. So did you see that shift happening in real time? And like, what were the components that that made that happen? Yeah, I think. um I think they just saw like sort of my competency in terms of like understanding understanding of the issues, right? So like, right. I think on the board, I probably understood the budget better than anyone. Like right. I understood the numbers. I understood like the legislation. I, I like had a very good understanding of like legislative relationships, like how the whole political apparatus was working. Yeah. I was able to like, I knew the details of the bills. Like I was, I was just like very, very invested in that mm-hmm. process, even though again, right? Like this is your volunteer role that like right. no one's getting paid for. I was like, Hey, I'm going to take this like it's a full-time job. Right. Um, and so I think by the time I was like lined up to be the president or like was advocating for those votes, yeah. I mean, I had built a reputation around being like the most prepared, like the, mm-hmm. like ready to be able to get the job done, like able right. to push forward agendas. And I think my fellow board members saw that and they said, you know what? Like, you know, at, at the time, I think my biggest thing too was like schools had just shut down, right? right. Like we were, and like this was, you know, March COVID had started. So like to December, you were talking about 10 months of COVID. And, and I, when I came in, my whole thing was like, hey, I want to reopen the schools and right. like return us to normalcy. Right. Obviously like that didn't happen. I mean, like right. it's, it's funny because you That's come full circle. Yeah. You come full circle. Like I started on the board. Yeah. Schools are closed. Yeah. You get to, like, we reopen schools, you know, like get through the school year. And now January again, yeah. my last 
my last days of as board president, right. we go virtual again, right? right? So it's like COVID has kind of like thrown everyone for a loop where like you fight so hard to reopen, but and then, yeah. And you know. what was that de- decision based on? Um, go, first of all, going in person for, cause you guys went in person for a little bit, right? And mm. then you went back to virtual. What talk to me through that process of making those decisions and what? Because I, I think a lot of people are seeing what's happening in the schools, but they don't understand what the conversation is behind the doors that say, "Oh, you should shut your doors and you should keep them open." So, so what did that look like? Yeah, I think um, the initial closing, right, like way back in March that that previous year, I think was just like it was more like a federal and state thing. I think right. like the state had shut down everybody, so you right? Were just essentially in. Yeah, in compliance with like the state order. Right. Then when it comes to reopening, I think the hardest thing is like, you know, people are kind of comfortable being at home. Right. Um, but we're seeing like the numbers for the kids aren't so great. And right. so like convincing, you know, our staff members like, hey, like it's time to get back in. So for for us, the biggest thing was like safety, right? Like, right. like I think kids are our number one in terms of like importance. But like right. you, you, I'm not going to send staff into an environment that's like not safe. Right? right. So like the first thing was like, how do we get vaccines? Right. Um, and I remember, this is funny. I just did like a guest lecture. I was a guest lecturer at Harvard for this class I was in. Um, so we did a class on like advocacy outside the classroom, outside the courtroom, right? right. Like in, in law school. And one of the things they talked about is like writing op-eds and like right. thinking about like, how do you shift public, like, like the public's like perception of certain items. Right. So when the governor first came out, with like his list of who could be vaccinated, right. his like second phase yeah. included smokers, uh-huh. but did not include teachers. So that's interesting. So you had 40% of the population yeah. basically could get vaccinated right, and right. teachers could not. Right. And so we write an op-ed as a board and we say, look, like governor, we need to reopen our schools. Yeah. Yeah. I want vaccines for my teachers. Like, how are we going to make this work? Like you need to amend your order. Right. Um, so this gets published and like maybe a week later he yeah. like makes an announcement and he amends it. Right. And so then we're able to work with the city, get our teachers vaccinated, you know, get them the two shots. Um, and then finally felt safe enough where we said, okay, our staff is like, you know, vaccinated. Like they have, they've had the opportunity to be inoculated from the virus. Um, like now let's build up the sort of like public pressure to like reopen the schools. So we've reopened. Um, and then now with the whole closing, I mean like the, number of cases i mean it's just ridiculous right oh, like yeah. a, like a million cases in a day across yeah. america yeah. and like new jersey new york again are hot spots yeah. um the biggest issue we had was i mean it was two things right one was like we just didn't have enough staff right right so like if we had reopened there were right. going to be so many staff members that couldn't make it mm-hmm. and then two was like there was no way to do contact tracing right i mean the amount of people who are going to come back from the new years yeah. with covid yeah there's no way you're tracing. And how large is a school district? How many students? I mean, we have 30,000 kids, yeah. right? Yeah. You're talking about 30,000 kids. Let's yeah. just assume 10% of them had COVID, right? right. Or like, you know, 3,000 kids. I mean, that's like, there's yeah. no way to tra- track it's a logistical that. logistical Right? Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's a, a piece that people don't understand because you talk about a school opening or closing and a district opening or closing and you kind of only read the headline, right? You're just like, oh, this school district closed. And then you might compare like a city like Jersey City to a city in rural like nowhere where their schools are open. And you're like, why is Jersey City closing? Why is this community opening? But they don't acknowledge that you're responsible for 30,000 plus students over yeah. a, a, a very large school district. So the logistics there become so problematic where it makes sense that you would close the school so that you can have at least buy yourself some time to put in the infrastructure to make sure that people can go 
back into school safely, I feel like that's a part of the conversation that's just lost, right? They see when districts close and they open, but they don't understand why a big district needs to close um, and why a small district can stay open. Do you do you get frustrated by that at all? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's always apples to orange comparisons, right? Yeah. Like, I think it's so hard, like, explain to people just like scale right, right. like scale is this it's, it's very different and even in terms of like running for office right even going back right. to that conversation right like to in 2018 in our election i think i got like 22,000 votes citywide right when you compare that to a city where you have to get 200 votes to get on the school board right right and like now people are giving equal weight to both things i mean it's just not the same thing, right? right. Like one person, like in, in, in a larger city is yeah. dealing with much more constituents, like many different groups, like even like, you know, like, like vaccine hesitancy, right? right? Like when you're talking about like, there are certain like neighborhoods in our city where like vaccine rate is like maybe at 50%. Right. Whereas like in other parts, it's like 95%. Right. But like as an elected official, I'm responsible for all of them, right? So like, I even remember in the pandemic, I mean, this was crazy. We had we had one group of parents telling us there was too much like online software programs, right? Uh -huh. And we had another group that said, hey, I don't have access to internet. Right. And so now it's like, how do I possibly like balance yeah, between that, the two? Yeah, right. Whereas when you're when you're like responsible for one school or like yeah. a small district, yeah. like everyone's kind of the same, right? Yeah. Like it's not like, sure, there's like some outliers, but like for the most part, like it's, hard, it's easier to manage that infrastructure. It's also easier to iterate, right? You can do something see the results and then change it and then you know make progress in that way like kind of being experimental whereas in a large city because there's so many different dynamics what you can't just do a one-size-fits-all solution so you can't just say we're going to impose this policy and see how it works because just like you said some of your schools like maybe that will work well for some of them it won't work well from but then collectively as a district, like everyone's going to have a problem, like someone's going to have a problem with it from one direction or another. Yeah. And that is also a huge factor, right? Like smaller districts can iterate quicker because you can try something out and there's not as many parties involved. Whereas a, a district like this, like one solution is not going to be effective for every single place. So you kind of do have to be like, let's hit the brakes let's think analytically here let's think let's use data whatever we need to use to make our decisions but we can't just put people at risk and be like we're going to solve the problem later i think that's where you're coming from does that sound correct yeah i mean there's definitely that aspect to it right yeah. it's like you you can't just like changing things on the fly is like really tough i mean yeah. we we did have one issue like one hiccup where you know at one point we had gotten teachers back into the schools right and the board, at least from my perspective, right? I remember being asked about it. Um, and my perspective was like, look, look, we got the teachers back in. Like that was the biggest like piece in terms of momentum. Right. Like we're heading towards reopening. Like right. we should reopen, right? right? And the plan was to reopen on that Monday. And Sunday, our superintendent sends out a robocall and he's like, schools are remote. And I just remember being blindsided. Like, yeah. where is this coming from? Like, how right. did this decision, like, you know, and, and I think like that's even like tough to, sort of manage that responsibility because you know at the end of the day you know the superintendent is basically the ceo of the organization right, right? right. and so like so you can make recommendations to him but at the end of the day he right like he's his job is to make the like his job is the day-to-day -day operations right like right. i can't walk in and tell someone what to do like my job is to just you know evaluate the superintendent like give him the recommendations of the board like provide that sort of support mm -hmm. 
Um, and and so I remember just being blindsided. And te- I mean, everyone was blindsided, right? right. Like in, in some ways, like everyone thought we were going to reopen and we right. didn't. Right. Um, and then even like galvanizing the board to say, look, like we need to have some accountability here and reopen the schools. Like we're ready to do this. Right. Um, and so then, you know, I think it was like three, four days that, that like, Things were in limbo, and then we did reopen. But I remember for a lot of parents, like that's real tough in a a district like this, right? Like, you if you tell everyone, "Hey, we're reopening Monday," twenty four hour notice of like, "Nah, no, we're not," right? Like, it's just it it's it's not great. And it's interesting because I understand where that can be so frustrating for people on the outside looking in, and they might look at that and be like, "Why does this seem so disorganized?" When in reality. It, I mean, it, maybe it was a miscommunication error, but it's not as disorganized as people think it is, right? But when something like that happens, because it's so impactful on individual people, they feel like this is such an outrageous thing that happened, when in reality, like, maybe it was a slight miscommunication that does have significant impacts. I don't want to understate that. But at the end of the day, there has to be some acknowledgement, like, we're all humans, and we're all trying to work, like, this is not something that, I mean, you've been, were you appointed to president during the pandemic, or was that pre-pandemic? So, January 2021, uh, so all 2021, the school, the calendar year. Okay, so, yeah. so that was during the pandemic. During the pandemic, pandemic yeah. So, uh, I don't think people realize that we don't have an instruction manual of what we should be doing when a pandemic hits. Like, right. it's not like something that, oh, every board of educated, like, they should know this. So, we're all, like, we're, of course, looking to people like you, the leaders, to make the right decisions. But there's no forgiveness, in my view, or there's at least a lot of uh, frustration that's taken out in the wrong way where people think, oh, because they had this miscommunication, we don't want to trust like the political system entirely anymore. When in reality, it's just a small miscommunication that you guys probably were quickly made aware of and you yeah. tried to correct. How yeah. do you feel about that, like with things getting blown out of proportion a lot nowadays? Yeah, I mean, we were always saying like during the pandemic, right? We're like trying to fly the plane as we're building it, right? Yeah. Like we're just like, no one knows how to do this. Right. And I think for us, like even that decision, right? Ultimately, the superintendent had made the call because he just felt like we didn't have enough staff, right? right. It was like, so many teachers had called out that week previously that we just he just didn't feel like we'd be ready to reopen. Right. Um, and then that next week, as we saw like the numbers again, we reevaluated. We realized we did have enough staff members that we could have you know a a reopening first for like I think it was like K to eight or K to five, and then reopening for the rest of the school districts. Right. Um, for the rest of the school districts. So I think for from that perspective, it's like you know understanding that some sometimes like you know based on the data, like people are going to interpret it differently, but like. It's because no one's ever looked at this data like this before. You never have like 10% of your staff out, right. you know, for a prolonged period of time right. just because of a sickness, right? right? Like no one's ever had to really deal with that. There's no one who's teaching us how to do this. Right. Um, and so I, I think there's a there's a big aspect to that of like, you know, being forgiving and understanding that, look, you know, we don't always get it right. Right. One issue that I have with politics and elected officials generally, right? is I feel like there's a lapse in communication where they may have the best intentions, but if people don't understand what their thought process is, then there becomes miscommunication. And my biggest gripe is why aren't politicians trying to correct the miscommunication? Like, why isn't there an increased level of transparency? Why aren't there just more, pu- I mean, more public town halls right now is difficult with the pandemic, but like, why aren't there like, 
I mean, even like, this is why I love this podcast, right? Because I can have a long form conversation with you to try to understand the decisions you made and how they, uh, they fit in place in the context of the pandemic. But we don't see a lot of like, just critical, like, transparency in a way where the people that are making decisions are explaining why they did. And I feel like that leads to a mistrust in government. Do you see that as an issue? And do you do you think about um, transparency as a politician. Yeah, I think um, I think there's some politicians that just don't want to be transparent, yeah. right? Like honestly, like they just you know they'd prefer to have as little complaints and as little time that they invest in like this community relations piece. Right. I think for me it, it was very important, and yeah. I think from the board side, I mean we were ahead of the curve when it came to tech in a lot of ways, right? right. So when I first ran for office, I remember using Facebook Live, right? I mean right. like. Throw back to 2016, yeah. right? Like this was, yeah. that was how I was like, you know, really building up a campaign. And so when I got in office, I said, hey, why don't we put our meetings on Facebook Live? Right. And so suddenly you had an influx of people who were watching our board meetings who never had access before, right? Because right. you'd have to be in person. Right. Um, and, they comment, and they can comment. And yeah. suddenly, like, I remember one of our meetings, like you had 20,000 views, right? Wow. And so you have all these people who are like watching our meetings invested and like, it became the new normal. Right. And I think people forget that like five, six years ago, these meetings even for the board of ed now are considered like, you know, very transparent. Like you can call in all this stuff. Right. But like five, six years ago, if you weren't there in person, you didn't. there was no, like you had no idea what was going on. Right. right. So like for us, we really try to invest in that. But I think communication for I think a lot of politicians is tough too. Like right. even trying to like understand like what is the best way for people to understand right. what is that we're doing? What is right. the best way for people to, understand like how we're thinking about things and then there's a lot of things you can't talk about right like right. there are closed session items when it comes to legal or finance or right. like real estate acquisitions that like you know you can't have the conversation about them until like there's like certain restrictions that are lifted right. um and so people ask questions and you you really just can't say anything right that's interesting um i want to talk a little bit more about the idea of running for office right and um that process and even just to touch back on what you said um and tie that a little bit into privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, your position is unpaid, right? And I know that there are a lot of young people that probably want to get into a place where they can influence decisions at a, like a board of education level, right? But they can't commit to doing something like that full time if it's not paid, right? And they can't, and, and that's why in a lot of ways politics is off-putting to people because it can be very depressing, but it's also because it's inaccessible to a lot of people, right? Whether it's the paperwork, whether it's, you know, they can't afford to be a politician because that's going to take up a lot of their time and they're not going to be able to make money. Like, do you, do you see that as an issue, like, that there are a lot of barriers that are preventing people that want to make a difference to actually get into the position to do so because they can't either afford it or they just don't know how to actually fill in the, out the paperwork. Do you see that as a problem? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if the paperwork is as much of an issue because yeah. I'll be honest, like we did this on Google. Like yeah. I remember when I was yeah. 19, like yeah. it was like, you Google how to I run for office. Awareness though. Yeah, I think like yeah. the position's even existing, right? Yeah. So like, again, like I had no idea a position existed until there was a conversation in my school around like, you know, someone who wanted to run for it. Um, right. But I think there's definitely a piece of like the affordability, right? right? Like. I have definitely lost money being yeah. in public office in the right. sense of like, 
going to meetings, the amount of time you're spending, and the opportunity cost, right? right. Like instead of being in office and spending, you know, 20 hours a week on that, like yeah. I could have had a job and made thousands of dollars, right? right? And like tons, like there's so many different ways you can like, you know, like have some influence and then do something else and make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a quick question on that. Do you feel like that's a feature or a bug in the system that it is unpaid? So, because to me, it looks like that's a way to essentially put up a barrier so that says poor people can't be in this position because they can't afford to. Whereas a wealthier person, that opportunity cost doesn't mean as much to them because they already have, you know, a savings or a support. So do you feel like that's a bug or a feature where it's like it's a bug in that we just haven't adapted and made it this experience welcoming to new people or a feature in that this is intently done to keep people out? I think it's a bug. Um, Like, I think we should pay politicians more, right? And I actually think there's studies around, like, you know, levels of corruption go down when you pay politicians more. I mean, like, this is, like, a real thing. Like, you know, the New Jersey State Legislature is a part-time job that pays you, like, 40K. But, like, who can afford to do a part-time job like that with their full-time job where they're, like, constantly having to deal with community relations, right? So the only people it's accessible to are the people who have, like, are, you know, independent business owners, like, lawyers, people who have... Um, you know, people, maybe professors, like people who have like retirees. Well, and um, you talk about that, the price tag on the campaign that was running against you, you said that it went over a million dollars, right? Like if your payoff after getting that seat is $49,000, but you have to spend over a million dollars to get the seat, then it doesn't make sense. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, like the, the numbers in it, like yeah. don't make any sense, yeah. right? They definitely don't make any sense. And yeah. I think, again, for me, like I know like actively so many things that I had to turn down to say, look, like I'm, you know, pursuing political office. Like I'm spending my time doing this. Like, this is what I, like, this is what I signed up for. Um, and so there, there's definitely like that aspect of it that I think is really tough that like, I think if politicians were better compensated, I think it would be more accessible to more people. Right. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about your experience as a student, right? You told me that you were pre-med track eventually you saw the impact that you could have in politics and you switched um, to now pre-law and you're you're at Harvard, you're doing work there, incredible work by the way. Um, what was that decision like, switching first from pre-med to law? And um, can you just share some of your reflections of what inspired you to do pre-med in the first place? Yeah, I think... Um... Like growing up, I always thought I was gonna be a doctor, okay. right? Like that was just you know like part of the immigrant experience, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, like we, we, I know South Asian, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know it's like doctor or engineer, and yeah. I was like, hey, I'll I'll pick the doctor out, I guess. Field, yeah. Um, yeah. and I, I mean the thing is, is like I was very good at it, right? Yeah. Like in high school, it took all the APs, AP, AP Chem, AP Bio, AP Physics, AP Physics C, like everything, right? Like you know did extremely well on all my all my courses, like went to college, like took the Orgo Biochem, like was crushing it, working yeah. at a lab. But I think like once I got an office, I mean like, I, I I started to ask myself like what is it that I'm chasing, right? Like why do I want to be a doctor? Right. And initially, I think the reason I wanted to be a doctor was like for the impact, right? Like the power to save somebody's life in your hands. Yeah. Like that was like really special to me. Right. And like it's immediate, you feel yeah, right and like there. You, yeah. you know like you feel like you can really change the world, right? Right. And you know, not to take away from like what doctors do, but like in politics, like I felt like overnight you could also like sign a bill. And like change the way people perceive themselves in society, right? Especially when you talk about the pandemic, where you know your decision of 
putting people in school or out of school, like that's one decision that you can make overnight, but it dramatically impacts thousands of lives. Yeah. And, and even like investment choices, right? So like yeah. investing in like Chromebooks, right? right? To say like, hey, every kid will have a laptop and internet access, right? right? Like investing in hotspots, right. right? Like now I'm giving access to so many kids that like would have never had access before. Right. Um, you know, we, we think things around like minimum wage, like minimum wage at $17 an hour, right? Like right. really like lifting people, you know, out of poverty, right? right? When we talk about like teacher minimum wage, right. like now our teacher minimum wage is $61,000, wow. right? I mean, like that wow. is like a real hard investment in education. Yeah. Um, we like eliminated student lunch debt. I mean, like think about like overnight, yeah. right? Like you go from a position where like you don't know if you're having like like meals at school to like suddenly every kid is able to get like free that's meals at school, incredible. right? Yeah. So like I, I think decisions like that. I mean that that's happened like more recently, but like even when I was first in office, um, you know, so like I'm a practicing Muslim, like I think my faith is very important to me. Right. We never had halal food in our schools. Wow. And like I'd say maybe 15 to 20 percent of the population here is Muslim in terms of the school population. And so like when we got halal food in our schools, Mm -hmm. I mean, like overnight, you're talking about tons of kids who now feel like their culture is represented. Right. Right. Like that they feel like they're someone in society is thinking about their preferences. And they have pride in that because I, I grew up Muslim as well. I'm not as practicing anymore as I once was. But it was it felt different. Right. Like all there's so many differences being a Muslim, right? You can't drink, you can't eat non-halal food, You uh, some people wear scarves. There's so many differences between us and they were so clear to me when I was a student. And I think that's what makes me not practicing is because there was just so much that I resented about yeah. being Muslim because it made me so different. Where yeah. I felt like I can't, I can't relate to the people around me because of my background and that turned me off to it and you know I do have to do some reflection and see if that was the right decision to make and that's that's a personal journey that I I intend to take at some point but I think what you're doing helps alleviate that right because when you offer halal food then it's not something that people can call out and be like, you're different because you can't eat the meat because now that person can also eat some selection of meat that is made available to them. So that does make a dramatic impact. Yeah. And I think even, I think my first one, I was trying to, I'm trying to think back to my first one. I think it was, it was um, like student code of conduct, right? right? So in our student code of conduct, yeah. it said on there, if you were going to wear like religious headwear, yeah, you have to get a note from a religious authority. So like no one enforces this, right? Yeah. yeah. But, Think about the fact that someone, when they were writing these laws, yeah. said, if you're wearing a hijab or a kippah or a turban, yeah. you need a note from a religious authority. Yeah. I mean, like, who's going to do that, yeah. right? Like, who's going to, like, go out of their way and say, like, hey, like, imam or pastor or whatever, like, I need to get this. Like, it, it, And so, like, in so many ways, like, you know, being in public office and, like, being able to represent a minority group, like, I felt like there was an impact that I was making that, like, I couldn't have made in any other industry, right? right? And right. so I think that was what drove me towards the politics. And then I think the law side of it, like I think comes hand in hand where like there are legal opinions yeah. that like provided me the education that I had. So like in New Jersey, we have Abba v. Burke, yeah. um, which like completely transformed school funding, right? right. So like, it, like in so many places in the country, even today, right. your zip code determines how much funding you get in your schools, right? right? So you live in a poor neighborhood, you're getting very bad funding for your schools. Right. In New Jersey, there was this whole line of cases which essentially established that even if you live in an urban district, right. you were actually going to get additional state support right. 
that would subsidize your education. Mm. So a student here in Jersey City, like even in a poor neighborhood, is going to get, you know, a per pupil allocation that's equivalent to a town like Milburn, right? Wow. Which is like extremely wealthy. Right. And that like changes the game, yeah. right? Because now you can live and have access in these communities right. um, to the sorts of educational opportunities that, you know, other kids are getting in these suburban, like very wealthy neighborhoods. That's interesting to me. And it... I, I want to tie back to a conversation that we had before the camera st- started rolling, um, which is you told me that you've always been someone that learns pretty easily, right? And that's why to you, pre-med was relative. I mean, it, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it was more manageable for you. And it sounds like law is something that's manageable for you as well. My philosophy, uh, like we talked about, is... I don't think, and maybe there are cases where people do have learning disabilities where, you know, it makes it harder for them to learn. But I think the biggest thing is that people don't necessarily, aren't necessarily not good at learning, but they just don't have intentionality into what they're learning, right? Or some mindfulness as well, right? Because it sounds like when you look at medicine, right, or when you were in that pre-med track, you had a clear purpose. Like your goal was you wanted to do something that directly impacted people. And because of that intentionality, I feel like it probably made learning easier because you knew the end goal. It's not like you're just doing this so you can get into med school. You're doing this because you see the impact at the end and you're excited by that impact at the end. So it makes the sacrifice of studying easier. And I feel like maybe that's also why maybe law, like you're able to get into school like Harvard because you're not doing the law just to get the fancy Ivy League degree. You're doing it because you see the value in learning everything about the law so that you can use that as a tool to impact people's lives. So you're looking at the end goal and you're taking these challenges on with intentionality. And I feel like maybe that's why you're able to learn a little easier than other people. Whereas a lot of people who are maybe even on the pre-med track or whatever, they're on their track of life, not with intention, but because it's something that was either through society or through their parents. It was communicated to them that you should be doing this thing. So it's not that you want to do it. You're just trying to get it done with. So you're not, you don't have intentionality. And that's why it makes it harder for you to pay attention and learn. Do you find that to be like a credible theory? Well, I think there's some, uh, there's some credence to that in the yeah. sense of like, you definitely, like, I think when times are tough, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, like this past year, especially like I, I remember my spring semester, it was like a really tough time for me, right? Like between just having been become the president of the school board right. um, and then being like a 1L at Harvard Law, like Harvard Law is no is notorious yeah. for its like first year being like really, really tough. Right. Um, and I think like, you know, when, when things are tough, like you just remind yourself the end goal, right? Like you right. remind yourself, like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I putting myself through this? Right. And I think if you don't have a real reason, yeah. right? If you're like, hey, I just want to make money. Right. Like, I mean, look, even it's fine to like, you know, look, I want to make money so I can live my family out of poverty. Like, I think that's compelling. But I think right. like, just like, hey, I just want to make money. Like, it's it's hard to like motivate yourself right. to like want to do the thing. Right. Um, and so I think like having that end goal in mind, I think like definitely provides like some context. Yeah. And that that's so important. I, I really believe that's the case, right? Because I had this when I was in college and in high school, I went to WWP. I mean, you're familiar with Jersey. That's one of the best school districts in the the country right and i was 
an average, probably I would even say a below average student in a lot of ways, especially compared to that district, right? Because there's so many exceptional people and brilliant people out there. And I never thought that I was a below average person. Like I never thought that I was a dumb person, but I think the reason why I didn't do well there was, first of all, the competition was a little too tough for me, where it's like, I felt, what was the point of trying when I know that all of these kids are going to do so much better than me? So, like, why should I even try to compete with them? And that made me comfortable with being average, and that's why I never excelled um, at that point in my life. Then I went to college. I went to NJIT um, right here uh, in, in Newark. We're in Jersey City right now, but just a town over in Newark. I went to college, and that whole atmosphere was entirely different, right? I was better at performing academically, but the fact that it was like a small campus community where I could talk to the professors, and because I was talking to the professors, I became more interested in the subject. Because I was more interested in the subject, I tried harder academically, and then my grades started to do better, and then I was able to do a lot of really good things. So I don't think that I was ever dumb in the first place, right? But if you looked at my life and you only you stopped looking at the end of high school, you would think that maybe I was not a smart person. But then things changed when I went to college where that environment enabled me to become the best version of myself. Do you think about that thought at all when you're the Board of Education president? Like, are you trying to create environments where people have more faith in themselves and then have also the tools that they need so that they can become truly passionate about what they want to learn so that they eventually can help themselves? Yeah, I think what I've thought a lot about is like, how do you get kids to invest within themselves and within their schools, right? So like one of the things we did this year is like we launched a participatory budgeting program, right? So the idea is like we gave every high school Mm $10,000 and you want kids to vote on where that money goes, right? right? And so now kids get to think like actively like, okay, Mm. like if I had to invest in my school, like where would I want money to go? And then we can actually allocate money towards these projects, right? right? So kids can feel investment within their school community. Um, And I I think that translates more to helping them understand like that their voice matters, right? right? Like, you matter in your school. Like, I want you to understand like what you are doing is like a real thing and like will make a difference Um, and helping them to understand like, you know, that they are act, like their engagement in society will like will make a difference. So I I think like that's a big piece of like helping kids be more intentional about like, hey, like I, like I matter. Like what I, what I put into the world like will make a difference. And and it also values their engagement, right? Because you give them the opportunity to spend that money, which It was going to be spent anyways, whether it was a decision that you made on how to spend it or they made on how to spend it. It was going to be spent. It's good that you gave them that decision to do that because it gives them some buy-in. My question on that is, first of all, did that policy get met with any concern when it was being proposed? And how does a policy like that get enacted? Because I see other school districts around the country where... If you probably said something like that, like, oh, we want to give the students an opportunity to decide how this money is allocated, I feel like it'd be a, a non-starter in a lot of school boards. So how did that that process come to be? Yeah, I think it was easier for me maybe just because, like, when I initially proposed it, I was 21, right? right? So I'm like, look, I'm here 21. Our budget is, you know, at the time it was like $714 million. Right. Like, 
you guys don't seem to have a problem with this, right? And again, like I knew the budget in and out. Like no one was questioning like my like right. decision making ability. Right. So I'm like, look, this is ten thousand yeah. dollars, right? Like relative, yeah, right? all, like to yeah. The, like to a seven hundred million dollar district. I mean, this year our budget went up to eight hundred fourteen million dollars, right? right? So like, and this was part of their budget allocation. I said, look, like we're putting money in here mm-hmm. for kids to be able to invest in their schools, like mm-hmm. it's civic participation. Right. And I think for our district, like people didn't really push back too much. And it's um, logical, by the way, just on uh, the time piece, I have like two minutes max left. Okay, I want to ask one more question then, um, because that was a really interesting conversation. Hopefully, I can get you on another point and to continue that have have that conversation. But one thing that was really inspiring to me is you recently um, you had a, di- a diagnosis of cancer, um, and then you went through chemotherapy. You went through a lot, and you you officially beat cancer. Um, talk to me about that experience, and I'm going to tie this question into another question so that we can sum it up and you can leave here. But um, when you look at, like, one of the biggest things I have, one of the biggest concerns I have is people think that their problems are holding them back and it prevents them from from trying to help other people, but you had, you know, this very significant issue, a health issue, which you don't expect at a young age, of having cancer. So that's like an end of your life problem, right? And even with that, you were still be able to able to be successful. So can you talk to me about you know that whole experience and how it informed your work and how you got yeah. through it? Yeah. Um. So yeah, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer uh, in 2021. So again, like you know. You know, in some ways, I remember like thinking it was like a, a funny joke, right? Like I just become the board president, like again, right. one L year at Harvard. Right. And then to like add on top of that, like stage four cancer and chemotherapy and like whatever right. that entails. Um, but, you know, in, in some ways, like I thought it was a blessing in the sense of like when you're in that moment yeah. and the doctor looks at you and says like, look, like, you know, you don't necessarily know how many years you have left. Right. Like, you got to ask yourself, like, what is it that I want in life, right? Yeah. Like, is there some bucket list? Like, I want to travel to Aruba, like, leave everything behind. Right. Um, and I thought what was really nice for me was, like, I realized, like, I was doing exactly what it is that I wanted to be doing, right? right. Like, even if it was, if I had a limited amount of time, yeah. like, I wanted to be serving my community. Like, I wanted to continue my legal education to continue to invest in my community, right? right. And I think for me, like, it was a nice realization at that age to be able to say, hey, like, I know my purpose here, yeah. right? Um. And it's fortunate, like it takes a traumatic event like that to like make you have, ask those questions. Right. But that's something I encourage people to like constantly ask themselves, like what is your purpose? Like what is it that you're chasing? Right. Um, and so for me, because I knew, you know, even with cancer, like what I wanted to do yeah. is like continue to fight for my community. Like it was. That kind of tells you that you're on the right track. Yeah, it, it was like yeah. I was on the right track and like I didn't, I didn't like struggle with it, right? Like yeah. I, I was like very much at ease. Um, yeah. Like I remember like my parents, I think were like really concerned. I mean, obviously like no parent wants to hear about yeah. like, you know, their kid like having to deal with this. But I remember telling them like, again, it goes back to my faith, but it, it was like go back, it went back to like what I was doing, right? I said, look, right. like if, if like, you know, there's more work for me to do. And if God thinks there's more work for me to do, then he'll give me more time. Right. But if he's happy with like the work I've done, I mean, I've gotten such unique opportunities at 23, right? Yeah. Like to be able to have been elected, to be at Harvard, to do these things. Yeah. Then like, you know, who am I to be upset that I've been able to do enough and put enough into the world that I leave with a legacy that I feel like was like a, a powerful legacy. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I mean, the amount of impact that you've made, I mean, even just from this conversation, I've learned a lot from you. You're someone that I am truly inspired by. Um, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for joining the podcast, but also like thank you for being the inspiration that you are because the decisions that you made as a Board of Education president 
were truly impactful. And I, I sincerely hope that people don't get frustrated about the things that are frustrated, which is, you know, yeah, okay, there was probably a moment where one person said the schools are open, other person, and you can get frustrated about that. But also, I hope people will put into context like the totality of the things that you've done, because from just making it more accessible for, to have halal food um, in the schools, that means a lot. If that happened when I was in school, maybe I would still be a practicing Muslim yeah. right now. So thank you so much for what you've done. Thanks for taking the time. No, um, thank you for I, having me. Yeah, really I appreciate hope, it. I hope we can continue this conversation because I really did learn a lot from you. Yeah. No, I love being here. Thanks yeah, so much. Of course, of course.